Hi everyone. Today's pensée concerns a recent piece by Ross Douthat titled Four Ways of Looking at Christian Nationalism, and it appeared recently in the New York Times. It's also influenced by a booklet that I've had for quite a while and just recently rediscovered. Yes, this is one of the problems of having so many books. The booklet is titled The Reconstructionists, and it's written by Rodney Clapp, who was the editor that accepted my first book for publication. What's probably most interesting is the date of publication of the booklet, 1987. It's important to understand that during this time, Rush Dooney and the people like Gary North appeared on many Christian television shows, particularly those of Pat Robertson. In other words, these folks have had an influence on evangelical religion since at least the 1970s. Christian nationalism is not new. It's not something that was just invented. The magazine Newsweek years ago proclaimed the Chalcedon Foundation, founded by Rush Dooney, to be the, and I'm quoting, the think tank of the religious right. Francis Schaeffer was deeply influenced by this way of thinking, and it came out in his late book, A Christian Manifesto. As Douthat acknowledges, the phrase has far outrun any coherent definition. That's his, his way of putting it. But here's the problem. If we define Christian nationalism by way of the Reconstructionists, like Rousseau's John Rushduni, Christian nationalism is pretty hardcore. In effect, then, the question is whether any given proponent of Christian nationalism agrees with the full Reconstructionism agenda. Where does one fall on the Reconstruction framework? By the way, the word Reconstruction here is being used as it was in the wake of the American Civil War. Rushduni and others see the need for a new kind of society, one that needs to be reconstructed out of the remnants of Western society. And this would be a society in which the law of the land would be the law of God. And this leads us to Douthat's first definition. Here goes. The belief that America should unite religion and politics in the same manner as the tribes of Israel in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the more extreme case, or Puritan New England, the milder one, with religious law enforced by the government, a theocratic or confessional state, an established form of Christianity, and non-Christian religions disfavored. You're probably thinking that sounds rather frightening. But I think the reality is being downplayed. In place of non-Christians being merely disfavored, Rushduni and North think the penalty for apostasy or heresy is death. Bear in mind, I would be an obvious target for such a group. Not only am I gay, but I don't hold to anything like Reconstructionism or its precursor Calvinism. That's right, it's not enough to be Christian for Christian nationalists. You have to subscribe to the whole thing. Here we might be able to step back just a little bit. Although the Dutch Reformed philosopher Cornelius van Til never in any way saw himself as a Reconstructionist, his way of thinking is at least at the core of their thought. Van Til recognized that thinking is always dependent upon presuppositions. We've spent a good deal of time talking about how Gadamer recognizes that knowing requires presuppositions but also that those presuppositions can be, and often need to be, put into question. 
Rashtun takes this idea and pushes it very far. He argues that any attempts to prove that God exists are blasphemous. He believes that without God's law in the Bible, there can be no science or mathematics. Indeed, he writes that there is, and now I'm quoting, no knowledge at all, only chance and universal death. I don't know about you, but it's really difficult for me to know what to make of any of those claims. Were early civilizations that didn't have the Bible capable of science or mathematics? Or was it just, hey, I, we, I just don't know. In any case, let me point out that precisely Van Til's contention that we always begin with presuppositions lies behind, lines behind Alvin Plantinga's claim that starting with belief in God is just as neutral as starting with a disbelief in God. Thus, Plantinga begins with the idea that God exists and works from there. Greg Bonson has provided a 619-page book designed to explain Reconstruction's ideas. It's called Theonomy in Christian Ethics. Theonomy, just in case you didn't know, is the rule of God. In that text, he argues that every single Old Testament law is just as relevant today, even in its most minute details. Normally at this point in such a presentation, I tell you that the Old Testament law tells us that homosexuals, blasphemers, astrologers, adulterers, and disobedient children are to be executed. That's true, of course. But here's something more important to focus on. Oddly enough, I've read a good deal about Reconstructionists, and I don't remember anyone making this point. For Paul, Christ's death means the end of the law. He and Peter had a long-running disagreement regarding Gentile converts. Whereas Peter and others in Jerusalem were insisting the converts follow Hebrew law, Paul argues that the law no longer has any force over us. In other words, Paul was quite happy to give up the law. So why did the Reconstructionists look back rather than forward? Here's one way of answering this question. In an interview, Rushduni speaks of the situation in Armenia where he was born. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth quoting in full. The whole of scripture was taken very seriously, very literally. To this day in Soviet Armenia, even the Old Testament sacrifices are observed in a Christian form. The animal that is going to be butchered, a lamb or a calf, is taken to a stone near the church door. Then the animal is killed. The priest portion is given to the pastor, and the man returns home with the rest. As it turns out, Armenia was the first nation to define itself as Christian around 300 CE or AD. Armenian Christians refuse to accept the Chalcedon Creed that establishes that Christ has two distinct natures. But Rashtuni's family converted to a form of Calvinism in which the Chalcedon formula, Jesus is fully man and fully God, is central. To put this a different way, Rushduni's Christianity is both Calvinistic and Armenian. It adopts the views of Calvin the Reformer while retaining the animal sacrifices of Armenian faith. The result is, well, a kind of weird hybrid of Judaism and Christianity. I don't find it very easy to call this Christian. I don't know what it is, but it just doesn't sound like it's Christianity to me. Now that second definition is the following. 
America is a chosen nation commissioned by God to bring about some form of radical transformation in the world, the spread of liberty, the triumph of democracy, and that both foreign and domestic policy should be shaped by this providential aim. While I don't know exactly what to call this definition, I'm quite certain that it is not Christian nationalism. To be sure, it goes in that direction. For years, I would attend commencement at the school where I taught and be faced with a problem. Although the school was deeply Christian, the ceremony included the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner. That's the American National Anthem. Somehow this struck me as so out of place. Why was a Christian institution including such an overtly political act? I eventually stopped singing, not knowing what else to do. We've talked at length about the idea that God has somehow chosen the U.S. to be a special place. There's not much evidence for such a claim, though many people do believe that. These kinds of ideas have been around for literally hundreds of years. They existed long before the kind of nationalism that we're talking about. But the kind of nationalism the Reconstructionists desire is one in which there will be no constitution, but instead everyone will be ruled by the Bible. Women will be recognized as inferior to men. There will be no public schools since families will educate their children in their own way. Gary North goes so far as to say that the, and now I'm quoting, the so-called underdeveloped societies are underdeveloped because they are socialist, demonist, and cursed. The Bible tells us the citizens of the third world ought to feel guilty, to fall on their knees and repent from their godless, rebellious, socialist ways. I don't know how to respond to a view like this. People who fail to achieve whatever one is supposed to achieve are often labeled, well, things like stupid and lazy. As far as I'm concerned, those are already unwarranted judgments. But to say that people in the third world have failed to prosper because they're godless or controlled by demons seems like a claim for which there can be no evidence one way or the other. Even if we start with the assumption that demons do indeed exist, it's very hard to get from demons exist to their existence is why a society does not advance. For completeness sake, I should include the two other definitions that provides. One is that American ideals make the most sense in light of Christianity, and that Christians should desire America to be more Christian rather than less. I've already spoken at length about how Christian Western society is, so I do think that the ideals that supposedly drive the U.S. are derived to a great extent from Christianity. However, such ideals could be taken up by various religious groups. In any case, whatever this is, it's not even remotely Christian nationalism. The last definition is simply any kind of Christian politics that liberals find disagreeable or distasteful. Why this wouldn't work as a definition is simply this. It's not the secular people who came up with this idea of Christian nationalism. It's that Christian nationalists are getting bolder in stating their views. Further, and even more important, there are a lot of other people who identify as Christians but repudiate Christian nationalism. Put otherwise, at least up until now, Christian nationalism has been a minority view. Yes, a very, very small minority. Most Christians not only do not hold this position, but also do not find this to be in any sense Christian. 
You do not need to be secular to denounce this position. Indeed, many passionately devoted followers of Jesus would gladly denounce it. But let's get back to the problem that animates Douthat's essay. He's hearing about Christian nationalism trying to come up with a definition. I do have serious questions regarding whether he really understands the history of Christian nationalism and how it's making itself known. The only definition that actually fits Christian nationalism is the first one. Anything short of that doesn't count. But here's the problem. Having listened to this short pensée, you now actually know more about Christian nationalism than the vast majority of people know. Rushduni predicted that this Christian takeover would happen gradually. Clapp quotes Joseph Kikasola, who is at Regent University, as saying, We do not believe in revolution or massive and rapid social change. What is important is bottom-upism, grassroots, transforming moral and spiritual change. My point is that even the most ardent Reconstructionists realize that their views will take a while to take hold. Yet I want to quote something that Clapp himself says. Few of those who have relied on Reconstruction's literature buy into the whole philosophy. In a nutshell, my friends, there is the problem. While there are undoubtedly those who subscribe completely to Reconstructionist thought, it's much easier to imagine it filtering into people's brains in bits and pieces. Part of the problem here is that if Christian nationalists or Reconstructionists were to come out and say what they really intend, they would not be well received by many. Another part of the problem is that I suspect many who've picked up Christian nationalist themes have little idea how they connect to the entire project. In 2022, Marjorie Taylor Greene self-identified as a Christian nationalist. She said at that point, we need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists. It sounds like she's just said something really important, but I have no idea what she means by this vague statement. She's just kind of linked these two things together and then somehow uh, said that we should be Christian nationalists. But what that means, I don't know. Lowen Bobert has been much more explicit, on the other hand. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. I don't think Rushduni would have put it quite like this, but that statement captures what he had in mind. If you need any more evidence regarding the anti-Christian character of Christian nationalism, consider this. North believes that the Sermon on the Mount was a series of teachings only intended for those who are captive. Once Christians are capable of forming their own country and culture, they don't need those outdated ideas like loving one's enemy or turning the other cheek. But if Christians give up those teachings, it's hard to see how they could be meaningfully Christian. Most religions and cultural systems have rules against theft and murder and those kinds of things. What marks Jesus' teaching are precisely these features of going beyond the bare minimum of the law and truly exhibiting love. And that makes me ask, is there anything about Christian nationalism that promotes love? I don't hear anything about love in Rushdunian North. But we'll have to stop there. 
I'm Dr. Bruce Alspenson, and thanks for listening to On Becoming.